Welcome to Woodland Church. Here is today's message. Um, today, we have got a special guest here today. Uh, I'm going to invite up Joel. Joel White is a missionary that we have been supporting here at Woodland Church for I don't know how many years here, Joel. How many? 37 37 years. years. So Joel has been... Uh, a part of this church family, and he's going to be sharing with us what the Lord has been doing in Germany, but also uh, bringing the word of God today. So, so, so let's give Joel a big round of applause today. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Really good to be with you today. As um, Jeff mentioned, uh, so many new faces, and I'm just thrilled to hear and see the uh, way the church has grown in this um, past year and uh, after a few or many rocky years. Um, I go way back. Um, I was baptized in this church um, in the 70s. My family started coming 1970 or so at the very beginning of this church. Only a few in the congregation were around in those days. Um, and uh, so this is the church I grew up, grew up in um, and felt the call of the Lord on my heart here many times. Um, as that developed, it turned out to be, uh, first of all, a, a short-term mission um, serve, or, um, trip. The back then, short-term was two years, not two weeks. Um, you had to sign up for two years, and I went over to Austria and worked with a church planning uh, project there. Met my wife there, who is not here at the moment. I have my daughter here, Emma, and our, our other daughter and her family are just flew into Marquette County, uh, K.I. Sawyer International Airport now, um, and so she's picking them up. She thought there would be worse things in life than missing one of my sermons, so um, um, she'll be here afterward, though, and uh, hopefully if everything went well with the flights. But anyway, um, so the Lord called me uh, to that, and that turned out to be um, not two years, but in the meantime, as I said, 37 years. The last 20 we've been in Germany, and I um, am a professor of New Testament at a seminary there called the Gießen School of Theology. Gießen is a town of 80,000 or so just north of Frankfurt, right in the middle of Germany. We have about 130, 140 students um, who are, uh, come from all sorts of different backgrounds um, and are preparing for ministry. If you don't know much about um, uh, Germany, uh, you might think, if you look at the pictures, you, there's always this church in the center of the town, but if you were to go to that church today, um, uh, typically you would find, let's say, a cathedral. I've actually had this experience of, that could seat, oh, 500, 600 people, and uh, a dozen people up in front, uh, average age, 70. Um, that's the state of the church in Germany. Um, it's really a post-Christian society with very few people who um, know uh, Christ or even the basics of the there. My wife does some work with um, refugees or did until COVID. That's been shut down uh, even till now, but we hope that that will start up. And uh, as I said, I uh, have the privilege of teaching all sorts of um, young people who are um, preparing for ministry in uh, the German-speaking world. Um, we're in the middle of a big building program at the moment. Um, if you get our prayer letters, which the church does, um, you can 
go and look online at our site. I didn't have a presentation ready this time to bring to you, but uh, next time we come through, we're here every summer, I'll um, have all sorts of new information for you. But I uh, want to thank you for your prayers and your um, giving, which allows our ministry um, to take place um, over there. It's a privilege to be here again, and um, we still have, um, um, the family maintains a little cottage up on Lake Superior between here and Big Bay, and um, so we're out there for two weeks of vacation, and then I'm traveling uh, to some other supporting churches all along the East Coast in, until mid-September, and, uh, but uh, this is always the highlight of our, our time in the U.S. when we come. I want to preach to you from uh, Matthew chapter uh, t- 10, a longer passage of scripture, uh, 10 through 42. This is the um, speech that Jesus gave, or the words of instruction that Jesus gave to his 12 apostles when he sent them out on kind of their first missionary assignment. And so it's a very important missionary text. It's also very timely. Um, as Jeff prayed for what's happening in Afghanistan, because it says something about what Christians need to be prepared for in um, the age that we live in when they take seriously the call of the gospel. So we want to read that scripture together and then um, look at that, and I have some thoughts for you about what that um, means for us today. So Matthew uh, chapter 10, uh, starting with verse 5. There we go. These, these 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper from your belts, no bag from your, for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious about how you, uh, anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all my, uh, by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in the town, 
flee to one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, that's an old word for the devil, how much more will they malign those in his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall on the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves daughter or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person, because he is righteous, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word which speaks very plainly to us and we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts willing to understand and obey as we hear your spirit speak to us. Amen. Um, Germans are not particularly known in the rest of the world for their humor. You don't think about German comedians. There are not too many of them in the U.S. They tend to be more of a serious race. And yet, when you live there, then you realize they can be pretty funny. And um, we were watching a show a while back, kind of a comedy show in German, and there was an interesting uh, skit that was put on there. It, it kind of revealed Germans' humor and a bit of their fear of what's going to happen to them when they deal with a bureaucracy. So anyway, this couple had just come back from the hospital with their newborn baby, and they were ooing and aahing about this baby, looking at it, and suddenly the doorbell rings, and they go and answer it, and there are two very stern uh, gentlemen standing there, and they say to him, well, we're here to take your baby. And they say, what do you mean? What what are, what are you talking about? This is our baby. And he said, well, you, you are so-and-so. And they said, yes. And, and you did book that internet vacation, didn't you, a while back? Um, 
and uh, we sent you down to uh, Greece for a very reasonable price. You remember that? You did get that, yes? They said, yes, that's true. And, oh, well, I'm sure you read the fine print, they said, where you click on it and you get all the stuff that's in there. And uh, here it says, you know, $500 for the trip, and we get your firstborn child. Yeah? And uh, so this couple's distraught, but what could they do? They had clicked on the Internet where they had, uh, where you do. None of us ever read that. So they mournfully gave their child and decided, well, maybe they could have another one. They would be very careful the next time about clicking on that before they had actually read the fine print. Maybe it was funnier when you were there. I don't know. But <laughs> um, isn't it good to know that Jesus doesn't bury all the conditions of our discipleship in the fine print, and you click on it, and then sometime later you hear about it. He's very open here about the conditions of following him. He says it straight out. One thing is certainly clear. We're not dealing with the sweet little Jesus boy in the manger anymore when we read this text. Most people love Jesus as a baby in the manger. He doesn't demand anything. In fact, he gives presents, right? Um, and this is Jesus as a man who has a very clear idea of what God has called him to do, and he's looking for the right kind of people to help him carry that out. And he lays it out very clearly so that we have no doubts about what's waiting for us when we decide to follow him. We want to just look, this is a long passage of scripture, and we can't really deal with all the details, but we'll look at a few things here um, in these verses. The first section, from verse 5 to 15, describes the task that Jesus is calling his disciples to, um, the commission that he has for them. And we can sum that up in one word, and that word is mission. Jesus is calling people to be involved in his mission with them. He's now here just chosen the 12 apostles, and he's about to send them out on what we would today call a, an internship, right? Uh, their first kind of experience in mission. And uh, so they're about to go out, and he gives them instruction. Um, we know from the end of the gospel that it's not just for those 12, but all of those who follow Christ are called to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But this is their first experience. They're supposed to gain a little bit of insight and um, learn the basics of what it means to carry the gospel into the world. And um, the emphasis here and in the New Testament generally is that the church that Jesus has founded is an institution with a task. It's not just there for us to be encouraged and to feel good about ourselves, but we actually have a task to carry out. And in fact, that is the only reason that Jesus has left us behind. You know, when he left, he said, I'm going away and I will come again. And in the meantime, you are supposed to take my gospel to the same, to the whole world. That's the whole point of us being here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a German theologian that you've probably heard about. Um, he was a, um, a martyr for the faith in the 
Holocaust in, in the Nat Nazi, period, Nazi period under Hitler. And he was a profound thinker about what it meant for the church to be the church. And he said this. He said, the church is only the church when it is the church for others. Not for us, but for others. The church is called to go to the alien and the stranger. And the important thing for the church to do is always have its sights on those outside of the church. That's very different from every other institution. The church is only the church when it's there for the others, for those outside of the church. And I think this is important for us to hear. If we were to look at the details, uh, we don't have time to do that, but a few things we can say. First of all, we're told in verses uh, 9 and 10 that we should take no money or take no supplies. Uh, it's not really a common sense kind of proposition, but I think what um, the idea here is that we don't make our own security the highest goal. We don't just move forward when success is sure. We risk everything as a church. We, are, um, we sense the God's calling, the Spirit calling us to be involved in mission, either here in the community or someone in the community says, I, God's put this on my heart, and we try to accomplish that without any um, assurance ahead of time that it may work. And a lot of people have done some crazy things for the Lord. Some have worked and some haven't. But that's part of what mission is about. Secondly, he says, when you go to a house, you just stay there. Don't go and uh, see um, how it is and then decide whether you're going to stay or not. Don't try to find a better place once you've got there. Don't be too concerned about your own comfort. Um, we've been in a lot of people's houses over the years, and um, uh, as we've traveled around sharing our work uh, on furloughs, and I remember once uh, experience we have one little church that supports us way up in the north of Maine, which is just like the UP. The accent is different, but everything else about it is just like the Upper Peninsula. The people there um, are the same. Um, and uh, we came up, and, um, and it's also more of a, you know, not a wealthy place. So we were in this church, and we came, and we uh, spent, we were invited to spend time in this family's home. And it was a tiny little house, and they had three kids. Um, and they had one, they had a, a living room where they had put, uh, they had actually gone and got their grandmother's old bed and put it right there in the middle of the living room. And there was barely enough room to go around all sides of it. And everybody went through the living room, you know, all night long. But that's our place in the house. It was a little strange um, to be there. And and I thought, you know, maybe, you know, this is kind of hard. Maybe we should go to a, a hotel or something. But I remembered this verse, don't leave. And sure enough, I mean, it was a bit odd, but those people became dear friends. And, um, you know, their children were kind of crawling over the bed to get the bathroom in the night and so forth. But it was all right. And, uh, and that church is just full of wonderful people. Um, in, the, in the meantime, there's another family, kind of a rich dentist. He's taken us in, so it's a little better as far as that. But that, that uh, family is still very dear to us. And um, we realized how important that principle is. But on the other hand, Jesus says, don't let people play you for a fool either. Don't stay where you're not welcome. It's not about success, but missions is also not about making yourself a pain 
in other people's back ends. Look for those people who are open. Don't force yourself on those who are not. So there are some very practical principles for mission here that Jesus is giving us. That's the first section, the task. The second section has to do with a prediction that Jesus is making. He says, what should we expect? Or the, the implicit question there is, what should we expect if we respond to Jesus' call and follow him? And here again, the answer can be summed up in one word, persecution. The description in verses 16 through 23 is quite clear about the type of persecution that people will face. They'll be dragged before mag- magistrates. They'll be even killed. They'll experience true persecution. This level of persecution is not yet a problem in the West, but it is in many parts of the world. We prayed for brothers and sisters in Afghanistan this morning. The underground church in China is growing through severe persecution at this time. It's gotten much worse if you follow the news under um, uh, P, what's his name? Xi Jinping, thank you, um, uh, in the last, oh, five, ten years, with constant surveillance and arrests and prison sentences, even some executions of believers in that country. When I read this passage, I think of my brother uh, Wes in Scotland. Many of you know him, and he often comes through too. Um, He has a church there in Glasgow. He's been ministering there for also about two decades. Um, And he went to Glasgow to minister to Scots, but over the last, oh, there was probably a crisis in his, the church he was working with uh, five years ago, six years ago, and they ended up starting something new. And the people who first came were Iranians who had fled from Iran. In the meantime, they have 150 Iranian believers meeting together in in a church building there. For a long time, they met in their flat until there was simply no more room for people to come. And they're coming to the Lord every week. It's just amazing to see. Among them are Ali and Suda. They were members of an underground church in Tehran until they were denounced, and they had to flee overnight for their lives, and they ended up in Glasgow. Or Arshaya and Omid, two men there, who became believers in Glasgow, they've been shunned by their families, and they're often attacked by their friends. Welcome to the world of millions of Christ followers throughout the world. Jesus makes it clear that those who follow him must expect this. The world won't treat the disciples any better than they treated their master, Jesus. Jesus says, don't expect it. They treated me badly, and they will treat you badly. But then the tone changes a little bit at this point, and the next section in the verses 26 through 31 is one where Jesus wants to encourage us in spite of this prediction. He says, basically, there's only one person that you actually need to fear, and it is precisely this person that the followers of Jesus do not need to fear at all. They don't have to fear those who can kill their bodies, but rather the one who is able to condemn both body and soul to eternal damnation. By the way, 
although many people think that, that's not the devil that's being talked about here, according to some medieval conceptions that the devil's the one who decides your fate. It's not. It's Jesus who decides your fate, Christ and the Father. The biblical view is that God is the judge of the living and the dead. And he says, if we need to fear that person, um, and yet we don't need to fear him. That's an interesting paradox that we have in the scripture. Um, when Moses is about to peep, uh, bring the people out of Israel across the Red Sea, there's a verse in that passage where God says, don't be afraid, for the fear of the Lord has come upon this people. It's the difference between reverent fear and terror. If you have a reverent fear of God, then you don't need to fear him at all. He's on your side. And it's this paradox that Jesus is pointing out. It reminds us of um, Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Won't he who did not even spare his own son, but rather gave him for us, give us all things? Here's the good news. God is on your side. He sacrificed what he values most, above all to save you, his only son. You may doubt your value, but God doesn't. He values everything he's made, of course, but it was only for humanity that he gave his very best, his own son. This is really amazing. The love of God is for his son is amazing and unfathomable. The father loves the son above all else, and yet he gave his only son to come and save us. Of course he's on our side. If he did that, then we have nothing to fear if we trust in him. That doesn't prevent the persecution from coming, but it does allow us to persevere in the midst of it through trials and huge challenges and even death itself. Section 4 gets a little bit more serious in tone again, where Jesus lays down the condition for all of this, and we can sum that up in one phrase too. Loyalty to Jesus. Verses 32 and 33 are among the hardest sayings of Jesus. Um, even though it's a rather simple kind of double conditional statement. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. If you don't confess me before men, I will not confess me confess you before my Father. And many theologians have struggled with this saying on a theological level. It's difficult, admittedly, on a theological level. But, you know, more and more, for me, it is simply a matter of basic respect for who God is, of decency. Jesus claims you as his own. He calls you by name. There's a verse in Isaiah 43.1 where God says, I have called you by name. Of course he should be able to expect that we will do the same, that we'll call him by name. I'm often amazed, actually, when I think about it in my own life, above all, but generally how bad we treat God, worse than the people around us. 
We often say we have to take a person the way he is. But how often do we do that with God? Do we take him the way it is? He is. It seems to me that people spend a lot of time trying to mold God into their image to make him be more like them rather than saying, I better expect God to be who he is and take him the way he is. Why should he have to conform to the image of we have of him? By the way, that's not a very likely scenario for success. God is an incredibly self-confident being with a strong character, and he never backs down from pursuing his purposes. Not as far as I can see in Scripture. And he has revealed himself in his word, and he has not changed one bit since then. So whether you like the way he is or not, that really doesn't matter all that much to him. He's God. It's time we accept him the way he is. You know, a few years back, maybe 15, 20 years back, I started to notice something about myself that disturbed me rather greatly when I realized it. I realized that I had started when I was talking to non-believers to avoid the name of Jesus. I would say, I believe in God, or I'm a Christian. And I thought, what does that mean, actually, in our age? What does believing in God mean? That's become a meaningless phrase for people. You can fill it with just about anybody, anything, and people will be fine with it. If you say you believe in God, that's not going to bother anybody. They'll just fill that phrase with whatever they think God is. Or, I'm a Christian. You know, the view of the me- from the media, even in Europe, of Christians in America is, that's somebody who voted for Trump and has a lot of weapons at home, okay? Um, I don't want to get into the politics about that. I don't really care about that here. But that's not the core of what it means to be a believer. And wouldn't it be great if people associated us with someone who loves Jesus, wouldn't it be great if we were to say, not I'm a Christian, but I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm head over heels in love with Jesus. People won't like it. If you want them to be pleasant and say, oh, that's nice, then say, I'm a Christian or I believe in God. If you want them to be a little bit provoked into thinking about this, Say the name of Jesus and call yourself a follower of him. I've started to try to do that, and very rarely do I use those other terms. I say, I'm one who follows Jesus. And, of course, he has the right to expect that. What would you think of me if I never mentioned the name of my wife, if I was ashamed of mentioning her name? This is, again, for me, not such a big, huge theological idea. It's more about being decent and respectful of the one who saved us. Jesus knows full well that this will offend people. It will cause embarrassment. It will cause ridicule. It may even cost you your life. People today are making that decision in other cultures. Whether to stand up and say, I'm a follower of Jesus, full well knowing that they may pay for it with their life. 
By the way, Jesus says, I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. This is actually one of the most misunderstood verses in Scripture. I have an atheist friend that I grew up with here. Sometimes we're in contact, and he tries to point out with this verse, see, the Christians are, this is just a violent gospel that Jesus is bringing. And I said to him, have you not read the context here? It is so clear that Christians are not on the hilt end of the sword. They're on the sharp end. They're the ones being killed. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he goes on and he makes it as if it couldn't get more challenging. He says, he must be your first love. He demands to be the very first in your life, above all family bonds. He says, if you love father or mother more than me or son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of me. This is a radical saying in that age and in our age, in any age. By the way, it's very important when it comes to marriage. Paul commands the Christians to marry only in the Lord. Um, and that makes sense because when one spouse loves Jesus above all and the other spouse loves his partner or her partner above all, conflict is inevitable. I love my wife more than any other person on earth, but I love Jesus more. And my wife, Tatiana, holds the second place in my affections. And the only reason that works at all is because it's exactly true of her, too. Both of us love Jesus more than each other. And we're committed to following him and loving Jesus together. That's why Jesus says it's important that these relationships be clear. He's first, and family is second. And finally, he goes on and says, if you follow me, you have to bear a cross. Following me, Jesus says, means following me to the cross. That's where Jesus went, and if you follow him, that's where you're going. I referred to Bonhoeffer before. You may know his story, but he was a German theologian, highly respected to this day as a theologian. And um, he was actually in New York at the beginning of the conflict for a year or so. Um, and friends of, him, of his told him not to come back to Germany because it was way too dangerous. He decided very consciously to go back, knowing what would happen. And he ended up being executed just a few weeks before the war ended because he never backed down on proclaiming that Christ was more deserving of our allegiance than any political leader, especially Hitler. And Bonhoeffer said this at about this time when he decided to go back to Europe. Every Christian must carry a cross. When Christ calls you, he calls you to die. And in his case, this was literally true. But for all of us, there's a sense in which it's true that we have to sacrifice ourselves, our agendas, our ideas about how we want to live our life and make ourselves available to God. Finally, 
Jesus comes in the last few verses to speak about the reward. He talks about the fact that we will be rewarded. He is aware of the enormous price that he's demanding of his disciples. And that's why he stresses that costly discipleship will be rewarded. He says, basically, let's make a deal here. I'll give my life for you, and you give your life to me. And in order to show that he's serious, he laid down his life even before you had decided whether you would agree. By the way, Jesus isn't expecting heroic behavior from us. He said, it's enough if you give a cup of water to a needy person in my name. That encourages me because I think, I can do that. That much I can do. I don't know if I can stand up to the Taliban and proclaim Christ. I hope so. But I can give a cup of water in his name if I love him to someone who needs it. Many of us don't like to think about or don't like the talk of reward, but it's really not about becoming fabulously wealthy, although some people think in those terms. You know, the proper reward corresponds to the wager, so to speak. A suitor who wins the affection of a stubborn woman is rewarded by her love. The love is its own reward. The painter of a masterpiece isn't really concerned about how much money he makes or she makes. It's the satisfaction of having creating something beautiful that it's its own reward. And with Jesus, it's like that too. You give your life and you get his. Some of you here know my knew my father, not very many anymore. He died 40 years ago almost now. And uh, that was in 1982. And uh, we got, my family, my mother got a letter from a doctor. This was probably around 2000, 20 years after my father had died. A doctor who had visited my father when we were in Africa as missionaries. Um, I was born in the Congo, and it was right about that time, 1960 or 62, that this um, doctor came from the U.S. who had gone to school with my father, to medical school, and he came to visit him there. And, um, and he wrote us because he wanted us to hear a story that, he, that impressed him so much about my father. He said he got there, and um, after getting there and sleeping, they spent the day together. My father worked at a hospital, and he helped all day from early in the morning till well into the evening. And they got home, and they were eating supper. And a call, or someone drove up and said, you have to come. There's a woman who's in terrible pain and uh, in labor and the baby's not coming and she'll die if you don't come. So they left supper and they drove for several uh, hours, got to this place late at night, midnight or something, helped for several hours to deliver this child and came back just in time to work the next day at the hospital. And this father wanted us to know, or this other doctor wanted us as a family to know, 
um, that, and he said, I asked your father, um, typical American doctor maybe even, what do you get for all this? What's your compensation for all of this? And he was so impressed with my father's answer. My father said, maybe a few vegetables, maybe a couple of eggs, maybe even a half-starved chicken. But most of all, the incomparable joy that comes from knowing that I am doing exactly what God has called me to do. That moves me, and I'm sure it moves some of you who knew my father. But it's not just because of that. It's amazing, that kind of attitude. And my brother in Glasgow also talks about the ecstatic joy that comes from unconditional obedience to Jesus and to his call. The Iranian believers there seem to exude it in spite of persecution. I witnessed that kind of joy in my father, and I've experienced it myself. One of my favorite hymns, or children's songs, actually, is Trust and Obey. I've told my wife, I want that song at my funeral. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's proven true in my life, and not just positively. There have been times when I made compromises or took the easy way out, when I was concerned about my rights and my agenda. And the first thing to disappear when that happens is joy. Still, Jesus never left, but waited patiently and again made his offer again. I gave my life for yours. Devote your life to me. Trust and obey and be happy in Jesus. That's the most important thing I've learned in over 50 years of following Jesus. And as a result, passages like the one we read don't bother me anymore. In spite of the hard um, words that Jesus says, the incredible um, challenge it is that he's laying out before us, because what he seems to hold out in this, without saying it so explicitly, is above all the promise of eternal joy. And even now, I'm ready to give my life for that. What about you?